The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. I'm Paul Rudy, uh, as the show is called, I guess, guys. I've been in Florida for uh, the last week. It's fun to come back to this from 85 degrees and sunny, but such is life. You know, it's still it's still pretty nice out. It's sunny out, so I like that part. Uh, here in the studio today is Dr. Fred Gertz back from Europe. Fred, good to be welcome here. To be, welcome to have you back. The show wasn't near as good last time you weren't right, here. Sorry, so I, I just want you to know. We have certified financial planner and retirement income certified professional David Rudy, who works with me at Rudy Wealth, as does... Certified financial planner professional Ryan Repko. Ryan and David, this is the first time I've seen you in about 10 days. <laughs> it's good to have you back. Good morning. I, We've I had to hold down the fort. <laughs> it gets pretty quiet when I'm gone, right? You guys probably relish it. <laughs> or is it not so quiet? Uh, I think we get a lot more done when you're gone. <laughs> it's fantastic. No ranting or anything in that <laughs> office, you know, or loud radio. I'm always listening to WDWS, so it probably <laughs> bothers you guys, but I like to listen to all the shows you can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the castle heating and cooling text line at 351-5357 you can also email your questions to talk at wdws.com no facebook live today but we will record it and we will have it on our social media page and website probably is that later today ryan in the next day or next few days next few days mm-hmm. uh we do get a number of people that actually watch it and uh, so are happy about that it's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results you should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence well fred it seems like we've gone from <laughs> I, I heard on uh, tv somebody and i suspect it's true it seemed like it in august there were in in all of the media i don't know how they study this the word recession was used you had to go back to 2008 or 2009, uh, you know, for a similar type of month. And it seems like we've gone from now fear of missing out of the stock market and no, you know, and, to, and perhaps no recession. Uh, but we're going to talk about that because in a little later today, there was a survey done by CNBC that two out of three people think there's going to be recession in the next year. But right. it seems, seems like it's really it's fundamentally changed since the last time I saw you. Yeah, there's kind of a cycle. And uh it used to be the cycle was are we having deflation for a few weeks and then we'd uh, forget about that and go on to something else. I think the uh, uh, part of it was uh, being overly pessimistic. The other part was more definitional. I think the economy was slowing uh, in the end of the summer, early part of um, of the fall, but slowing is not the same as a recession. Recession actually is turning around and going down. So I think we, we had uh, less than 2% growth for the um, uh, third quarter, which is not great, but it's certainly far from a recession, which would be below zero. So again, I think it's uh, clear that we're not growing quite as fast as we were, but uh, that's something that we're like used to now, kind of back to the uh, new normal. Yeah, we did have just just under 1.9% is what it was, the real gross domestic product. And it looks like the economists uh, polled by Dow Jones expected 1.6, so I think that was even higher than it looks like right. the most folks thought yeah and it's overcoming the headwind of all the uncertainty we have in terms of what's happening in europe with brexit and what's happening here with uh, who knows what with the the politics so uh, uncertainty by itself is a kind of negative thing for 
uh, businesses, and they certainly uh, there, there's always uncertainty, but maybe a higher degree uh, now. I think when investors think of uncertainty, they think, well, it's just the uncertainty what my returns are going to be in yeah. my investments. But really, from an economic standpoint, I, I think what I'm hearing you say, I think, is if you're in business, um, the more uncertainty about what the rules are right. or what the rules are going to be and how they might change makes it much more difficult to run a business. Right. Yeah, there's tax uncertainty, but now uh, we have this new uh, trade uncertainty. So if you're an American uh, manufacturer, should you uh, expect that we're going to have uh, less less uh, trade with China and then you know, expand, build a new factory, or you might do that and then uh, – uh, six months from now, uh, it's announced that we are back in harmony with the Chinese. And so, again, that, that kind of thing is uh, something where people will simply put off a decision in many cases. I read that and it seems like uh, this trade war maybe was a little overblown as far as the yeah. impact. Uh, I read something that the American brands could get a cold shoulder from Chinese consumers. That was the fear, but it was not the case. As it turns out, the U.S. was the second country by, uh, I think it was gross. So it's, uh, I forget what GMV even says, gross merchandise value. I take it yeah. that's some form of sales. Uh, they were the second country uh, by that in terms of countries selling to China. And Jacob Cook, CEO of WPIC, an e-commerce tech and marketing firm that helps foreign brands sell in China, told CNBC that jewelry and apparel Jewelry and apparel were the most popular categories, but I thought as interesting his comment was, there is no downturn there. There is no evidence. There is sentiment decline for u.s brands now that's right. one guy's you know that's kind of his job uh so so maybe that's maybe he's biased there i suspect he could be but even what i'm hearing from it you know there are select companies that have been impacted but it seems like in general most right. ceos are saying yeah really hasn't had much impact right uh but you talk to farmers uh, oh <laughs> sure a, a big impact and <clears throat> it's kind of the uh, uh silliest of all policies where you uh uh, restrict trade to China, and then you pay farmers because they can't export to China, which is kind of the, the worst of all worlds. So, and that's uh, not unusual. It seems like we do a lot of silly things yeah. politically over the decades. Yeah. Uh, you know, that it turns out uh, uh, this is not a precise reading, but uh, uh, trying to save a job either by a, a public subsidy or by an export uh, or import duties usually ends up uh, costing several hundred thousand dollars per job, with, and the jobs are obviously not paid. Right. Several hundred thousand dollars, so it's not a very efficient way of, of promoting employment. But politically, you know, that's how we get elected, yeah. uh, is by doing these types of things. And the same uh, thing because is, uh, it's the seen and unseen, right? Yeah. Well, the same thing is happening now with uh, nuclear power in Illinois. The, the uh, uh, Exelon is, is threatening to close their plants, and if they to keep them open, uh, they, they'll raise the rates on all the rate players. So the people making $100,000, $150,000 in the, uh, in the uh, engineering part was to keep their jobs. So, it's, again, it's an expensive way of, of keeping your plants open. Always a profit deal, I tell you. It's always yeah. a profit deal. And I did, there was, I, I saw this uh, survey, uh, two-thirds of the respondents from CNBC Invest in You survey thought there was, uh, there's a recession coming. I guess it doesn't really have a timeline on it so i guess so there is a recession coming i guess probably get 100 percent of people get, yeah. give that but i thought it was interesting but it doesn't surprise me uh the republicans are far less likely to agree saying 46 percent uh, with 46 percent saying a recession is coming compared to 84 percent of democrats i'm not being political here i'm just saying that's just kind of where we are these days it appears that you know whatever 
your view is sometimes comes down to politics. Yeah, well, people aren't. Uh, there, there's no really have to be consistent. I think there was another study that showed that uh, investors expected 10 or 12 percent answer returns on their on their investment at right. the same time. Yeah, and it's interesting. Now I see these courageous people, you know, that have big splashes on financial websites saying, you know, such and such analysts calling for a 10% correction in the Dow. I mean, you know, I was thinking, wow, how how manly or womanly of them to make yeah. such so courageous to we have one of those probably every year at they least. They didn't say win though either. <laughs> no, and it's just it's just one of these things and I know David, that's one of the things we're going to talk about today is what do you, you know, a lot of people when they hear continuous all-time highs but yet people are reluctant and we'll get into that yeah. in a little bit it seems like the consumer is really strong fred uh and even uh, globally i, I noticed that alibaba which is kind of like uh the amazon of uh right. maybe much of asia but particularly china but they all through the asian countries they set a sales record for the world's largest 24-hour shopping event. That yeah. was just November 11th, I think. Or yeah, I didn't understand what it was. but it was <laughs> I, I, Just a lot of stuff on sale, I guess. No, they but had some kind of name for it. That it was, uh, uh, I was, they did, and I guess was, I don't... I was kind of obscure, but... <laughs> I, 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 did, I didn't get that message, but it was... Uh, I guess it was huge, and they suggest that, you know, maybe the consumer, even globally, is still... I guess maybe yeah. because it was all on sale and maybe really cheap, but still... It was like $30 billion in U.S. dollars more yeah. than the year before. Right. It was pretty substantial. And, and I think that's what we're – everybody's starting to realize that employment's still really strong. We just had 125000 It's not all perfect, but I'm just saying in the aggregate, there's not much talk now about recession like probably the last three or four shows. Uh, we talked we, – not that we talked about it. We talked about how a lot of people were talking about it. Right. So it just seems like uh, – and that's when I saw an article today that – it's a uh, FOMO, fear of moving out, now replacing fear of recession. And that's yeah. just how quickly the psychology changes. Now, think if you're an investor and you're listening to all these doom and gloomers, and uh, it's, you know, we have this inverted yield curve, which is no longer inverted. Uh, you know, we still didn't have the low real interest rates we needed for a recession, in my opinion. But it's just it's the psychology, if you're a pessimistic and watching this market kind of creep up and creep up, climb that wall of worry, as they call it. Hitting all-time highs again, and now it's like, now what do I do? And, and yeah. you know, we've talked about melt-ups before, which are always possible, and that's kind of where melt-ups come from, is sudden shift to fear of yeah. moving out. But this is a little different. Missing out. It certainly, uh, it's been a creeping uh, kind of expansion in terms of new highs. They haven't been uh, uh, going up by uh, you know, 1,000 points a day or anything. So it's, it's been, it's been like a slow a, walk. A little bit, yeah. Uh, really, you know, a, a classic backing and filling, but at the same time, I look at all the measures of money mark money going into money market funds. It's amazing how much money is in simple money market funds earning essentially nothing. Right. That also could fit into this kind of melt up situation where once that tsunami of once that dam breaks, like what it could mean for and who knows? I mean, I'm not here suggesting that's it's not a forecast, but I see certain conditions that we may never see again that you will look back and go, "Wow, it was pretty obvious. Everybody was overly negative." They were, and when I, I measure that by what they're doing with their assets and they're buying bonds and putting money in money market funds and they're moving out of stocks pretty heavily. Kind of consistent theme, actually. And this is, this is the, to me, guys, it's the most hated bull market that I've been through. And I went through the secular bull market of 1982 through 2000. And I, I, you know, we forget, I suppose, after a couple of decades, but I don't remember it being as hated as, as this one. It's also a kind of strange world because, uh, we're talking about uh, a good economy and um, the market uh, doing really well, but at the same time, 
if you read the newspaper, it's a terrible economy. Uh, you know, there are hundreds of people who are uh, desperate and uh, big differences in, uh, in income distribution, things of that sort. So uh, the typical uh, kind of view you get by listening to the politicians is quite different from what we're talking about about here. I wonder, uh, and I'm not going into politics, I'm just wondering some of my observation, if outside that beltway, you know, you get into the, the rest, the inner core of the country, if, yeah. if it really plays all that well. If I, I don't think it's what everybody's right. sitting around thinking about, but uh, I'm convinced the politicians actually believe, or some of them actually believe the stuff that's coming out of their mouths. And there's been a lot of pushback from the uber wealthy on yeah. the wealth tax yeah. and some of these other issues. And so there's a lot of, lot of interesting things being floated. Yeah. Uh, it probably scares some investors and probably yeah. scares certain industries. And I guess it's probably been that way since day one. Well, it's unlikely that uh, even if uh, one of the uh, advocates of the wealth tax is elected, that that will be ever approved. Uh, uh, ta- taxes, everyone knows, are, are super complex. But if you think about it, a whole, whole new tax on wealth, which has never been implied and never worked in another country, uh, you've got to think that it's not going to happen very quickly. I do find it fascinating that with 330 million people you could almost have and I'm too broad of a brush here but it almost seems like you have 50% of the people seeing something as white and 30% I mean 50% of the people seeing something the colors black yeah. uh, they're reading the same information the same data uh, I assume in the broadest brush a similar education in educational system and and how two people could have just diametrically I mean it's human I understand that but right. it's it fascinates me at the it also time. shows the stability of the markets because if you look at the uh, election a year from now it's going to be probably uh, more of the same or something totally different and uh, neither of those probably is particularly attractive to most investors but the, the, the market moves right ahead without uh, not even worrying about it is that because Fred and guys do you think uh, because as I've described sometimes um, you know, all right, we have a new president, whoever that may be, or maybe we do, maybe we don't. Maybe we have, you know, a, set, a new set of policies. Companies like Apple, all the great companies, they still go back to work on the next yeah. business day and they sit around the boardroom and say, well, we may not like it or we may love it or whatever, but hey, we still got to make the new, you know, Apple iPhone 11 or maybe 12. This is really a different, I mean, that's true, and uh, I hope it continues, but this really is different. It's not uh, Bill Clinton versus George Bush or Obama versus Romney. Uh, the differences here are much much greater uh, in 2020. They, they, I think they clearly are. I mean, you can say what you want uh, about some of those, uh, Clinton, President Clinton and, and Obama, and some people were worried that they were going to be the economic antichrist but if you step back and were relatively mature and have an adult, had an adult memory yeah. at that time you'd say oh yeah they have different views maybe than I do or maybe yeah. than other people but at the end of the day they still have to they have to go through a lot of work just to get yeah. it's hard to get stuff moved but presidents and administrations can certainly have an impact on business and the economy can they not yeah but again I think it's really again I'm being uh, alarmist when I'm not really alarmed. But uh, in the old days, we used to say, well, the difference between uh, John Kerry being elected and George Bush being reelected was maybe 1% of GDP, maybe a slightly higher taxes with a Democrat, slightly lower with a Republican, but no major change. But what they're talking about now are really not, uh, not kind of um, 
uh, nudging the, the yeah the pre nudging. pretty massive right. uh, programs uh, you know just by their own numbers right. are pretty massive programs. Uh, David, I was going to just add something to that. I think the thing that people need to remember as investors is that it's really difficult to make an investment strategy out of a prediction around politics or what will happen in the political world. Um, just because, first of all, you don't know what's going to happen, obviously, but even if you did, you don't necessarily know how the market's going to react to it. Um, because what happens is the market is going to bake into the current prices basically a certain amount of expectations for the future. So sometimes even things that are somewhat negative from an objective standpoint, the market might go up despite those things happening just because that negative news was already into baked into the current prices, essentially. So it's just, I always tell clients, it's almost always a bad idea to change your investment portfolio based on politics. And you don't really mean it's, it's not always, you know, it, you should never do it. Right. right. It, it really and is always a bad idea. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I'm consistent on that, too, as much as I think about the stuff. At the end of the day, it has zero impact, guys, on how we invest for our clients. To us, it all still comes down to, well, they have these income streams. They have this pool of assets to potentially also enhance retirement. Uh, we basically have two different assets that we can invest in. We can lend money to the great companies of the world by buying their bonds, or we can lend money to banks by buying their CDs or lend money to government. So I'm talking about fixed income producing investments or one side of it. And then the other side is we can actually take partial ownership in the great companies of America and the world. At the end of the day, once we figure out here's the income streams they have, here's the pool of assets they have, here's the life they said they want, how big is that gap and how are we gonna get, how are we gonna close that? And, and much of that has to do with strategy centered around your asset allocation and your uh, and your adjustments all through life. And we really never, th clients though, it's not infrequent to hear, well, we have clients on both sides. Uh, I suspect most of them are somewhat towards center oriented, but not all of them, but certainly have all different types of political personalities as clients. And they all, a lot of them worry, you know, for different reasons, but they'll come in worried about the tweet of the day or the policy of the day or the proposal of the day. And we always have to remind them, look, you can't make a, you just can't make an investment policy out of that. We have to really keep our heads down and make, try to make this intelligent uh, of, of strategies uh, out of the information we have. And constant commitments to asset classes are generally the best idea. And if something in life changes or if, if the returns are such that we might have to make adjustments in spending upwards or downwards. But other than that, there really shouldn't be a lot of tinkering with it. For sure. And I really like Dimensional Fund Advisors has some slides that they created from research that they had done. And they looked at a couple different things. Well, a few different things kind of relating to politics. But one that's kind of like more relevant now is what have market returns been during election years? So there's a little bit more uncertainty in election years. But you know, what has the stock market actually done? And if you look at just the, the return during election years, it's very, very close to just the historical average for any given year in the market. So there's not really any sort of strategy there that you can pick out and say, okay, here's how I should shift my portfolio because it's an election year. And then even once you know who's elected, it's really difficult to know. It's, it, it's really there's not a profitable strategy uh, to to implement at that point because they looked at, okay, well, what have investment returns been during uh, Democratic presidents and what have investment returns been during, you know, Republican president terms? 
and basically what you see is that it's strongly positive regardless of whether there's a Democrat or a Republican in office. And so the the point to be made here is whether it's an election year or regardless of who's in office, investment returns have been strongly positive on average. And so if you're get in particular getting out of your or reducing your stock allocation in response to some of these things, chances are you're going to end up being worse off having done that than just staying invested in your portfolio. No question about that. I mean, we see so many people that come into our office uh, as prospective clients looking for help. Most of the time, it's after two or three attempts, sometimes by the client themselves, but many times by another advisor that just have these interesting theories about how you should do things. And what happens is, you know, especially on the front end of retirement, it's so important to get things right. One bad decision on the front end of retirement can really lead to a pretty destructive retirement. I mean, I, in my newsletters, I'll call it, you know, a retirement of eternal financial sadness, uh, you know, hyperbole, hyperbole, I guess. Uh, but you really got to make these decisions right, and they really need to be consistent. They, I think they just need to be sensible. We're going to go to John on line one. Yes, John. I've been enjoying this bull market, but at the same time, um, I'm doing a kitchen remodel, <laughs> and I thought, what the heck, I'll take some money out now and just enjoy this ride up, take this cream off the top, uh, and as I get into this remodeling project, I don't care what the market does. And I, I'm course. in the same position with uh, my pension. I'm two years away from my pension. I've taken my living expenses out here as the market has risen for the next two years, and I don't care what the market does. But my question is, what do you think of that? Am I in the right place? Am I making a silly mistake? Well, I think it's hard to say without building a financial plan, but it's as good a time as any is kind of what I would say. So it's difficult to know. You know, when we're building plans, retirement plans for clients, basically we're determining how much they can spend. And a lot of times they'll have one-off things. It's funny you bring up kitchen remodel. I was just meeting with a client, and they were going to have to remodel some pieces of their house. And they had a similar question. And, and really the best thing to do is just look at, okay, based on my assets now, regardless of where the market has been or where it's going, is this enough, basically, assets to sustain my normal spending in addition to this extra withdrawal, essentially? Is that uh, – and, and, John, I would say that, yeah, I think you're doing precisely the right thing. Uh, right now, I can't tell you in the last month, I've told at least a half dozen of clients that we can move, for instance, from 70% of their money being in the great companies of America and the world – David calls that the stock market uh, – down to maybe 60 or even 50 and they look at me, they think it's a market forecast, I'm sure, and I'm just saying, no, because of this great bull market, your plan is well ahead of where we thought it would ever be. And this is the time you exercise that option to take some uncertainty out of your retirement. And, and, if the, and, and really one of two things is ultimately going to happen. It's going to keep going higher, which it ultimately does, or over the next block of time it's going to go down a lot. You're going to feel good about it either way. So you're, you're really doing the same thing. I practice a lot with clients. I call it sometimes cheating the stock market. It's kind of like, you know what, on any given day, some of my client portfolios will fluctuate in one day, you know, <laughs> enough to wipe out the kitchen expense. You, you, you follow me? So yeah. I, I think you're approaching it sensibly. Uh, the first, the last, the, the, the few years ahead of retirement and the first few years into retirement are the most critical years around retirement. And I could even say your returns and your experience in the first 10 years really have 
most to do with your whole retirement. So I think you're approaching it right. I think it's, you're, like you said, it's independent of a stock market view. Sounds like you're harvesting some of your well-earned gains, and I think you're, I think you're doing the right thing. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks for calling. So that's a typical real-life situation, Fred, that we get from our clients. Right. They will literally come in and saying, hey, we're thinking about doing this. Is this really, or it's always, is this a good time to do that? And then as David said, and we all do the same thing, we say, well, let's pull that 30000 out of your portfolio as if it's gone, and let's see how your plan looks from here on out. And most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, we can pull out a reasonable amount to them it's pulling out a lot to us in the grand scheme of things it's not just our minds are trained to go there and think through it pretty quickly and that's really the only way you could measure here's your retirement if you don't do that here's your retirement if you do that which one do you like better pick well and i think when they say is it a good time people think in terms of a market forecast for the future but when i think of is it a good time to pull money out it's like well, yeah, our account balance is higher, so we're going to have more capacity to take extra withdrawals from the portfolio when we put it in your plan versus if the market had gone down substantially over the last year, your plan's going to be less funded. It's kind of like a pension that has less money you know, funding its, its payouts, and there's going to be less room for those additional one-off withdrawals. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's a good time, but not because the market – not because we expect the market to go up further or because we expect it to go down from here, just because – your your portfolio is bigger, so it's just it's just a better time to pull money out. And when we're building those plans, we're pessimistic on the front end, so we're planning on really horrible stuff showing up. And if anything less than horrible shows up, plans can easily become better funded or overfunded. Right. And this is a little different. It's, this is a, a combination of consumption and investment, so you're actually probably getting something back in terms of your home value. So if you took right. the uh, saving out money for a round-the-world trip, it might be a little different from uh, remodeling your kitchen. For yeah, sure. It's really one asset for another, really. Uh, a, I mean, it may asset. not be one for one. You never, I, I understand building that. Building a swimming pool is probably not as good an idea <laughs> as uh, Oh, Fred, you're no, your, you're no fun, Fred. <laughs> yeah, Fred's no fun. And, uh, and that's the other thing that uh, I've done uh, quite a bit of research and created some interesting programs over the last few years and one of the things that's leading us to and has led us to is to be much more conservative on the front end of retirement to really respect what happens in the first three to five years uh, and I think that really pays off but it's that conservatism that really leads to uh, more upside in a plan and, and so so because we don't want to be overly conservative over their whole life but on the front end of retirement you have to respect this, this what we call sequence of returns risk, how and when we get our returns. If you get poor returns on the very front end, which you can't control returns, um, it can really have an impact. So you really have to have a strategy in place that effectively deals with that. Uh, David, you were in an article. I'm not going to go through the whole article because, frankly, it wasn't that exciting of an article. But <laughs> there was some uh, – <laughs> so what happens when you go on vacation. You know, you just, And I turned 60, so now I don't have a filter anymore. Can you imagine me without a filter? That's yeah, the cutoff, that's, 60. <laughs> Well, that's my theory. I think you eased <laughs> into that a little bit. But. <laughs> yeah. I, think, yeah. I could use a filter. Um, there was a, a survey done about super saver category of investors, people that are, who save 90 to 100% of the IRS maximum contributions allowed in a f retirement plans, or they're deferring at least 15% or more into their – so they call into their retirement plans. So uh, they called those – they classified those as super savers, and they wondered uh, – 
what have the super savers sacrificed? And I'm so I know you were part of the article, and that was I don't remember what article that was, Dave. Do you? It it was on Go Banking Rates. I forget the title. Go Banking Rates. Go Banking Rates. dot com. The biggest ones were cars, homes, and travel are where the super savers make the biggest sacrifices. Now, they go into all other ones, cups of coffee and things like that, but we were talking before we came into the studio. You know, uh, you kind of have this feeling, and Ryan, you feel free to share, kind of like, I'm curious, do you feel like it's those big ones or it's the aggregate of all the small ones? Well, I mean, they both have an impact, but it is kind of funny when you're responding to these these inquiries from reporters um, they can kind of pick and choose parts of what your, your response right. is and then use that in the article. So they, they chose a, just basically a piece of my response. And basically my what I wrote was, look, I think instead of worrying about every little nickel and dime and driving yourself nuts with that, if you make two really good decisions, you, you make a frugal decision with your home purchase and a frugal decision with your car purchase, that frees up a lot of cash flow for saving, but then also money on discretionary spending in other areas of your life. And then the kind of second part of their question for the reporter was, why is it worth making these sacrifices? And I just basically said, look, I don't think buying a, a reasonably um, sized house or, or for your budget, essentially, or a car is even that big of a sacrifice. Because if you look at the research, most people just take their home and their car for granted after a certain amount of time anyways. And by freeing up money for savings, you're going to feel better about yourself because you're going to be more comfortable financially and know that you're on track for your goals. But also, just as importantly, you're going to have more money to spend on things that are associated with increased happiness, like uh, relationships and times with friends and, and meals out with friends and travel and certain things that, you know, the rest of the article is basically saying you, you almost should cut every, every discretionary expense out yeah. of your life. And I just think that's a terrible <laughs> approach to doing things. That's, unless you absolutely have to, you really don't want to cut all those Ryan, things. Ryan, after uh, the past couple of weeks with two sick toddlers uh you might say you shouldn't have children that would save a lot of money <laughs> stay home hunker down and do nothing yeah but yeah I, I got the same feeling from the article that i think you guys are saying too is that they almost went to the extreme so there's a there's a moderation that you can live in in the middle and it's like you don't have to cut out everything just don't do the big the big things wrong like max out the amount of mortgage you can take or get the most expensive car that the you know the loan will give you. If you live something slightly behind that, you then have margin for life, like we call it, and have the ability to maybe, you know, I say splurge and, and finger quotes, but maybe go out for a dinner that maybe you wouldn't ordinarily go out to, you shouldn't too. So it just gives you optionality, which I think is what gives people a little more happiness in life. And less stress. Uh, you know, I see, you know, I see a young 28 year old get lady, uh, driving a $85,000 Suburban, I, I don't look at that as a status symbol. I look at that as an IQ test. Um, I, I drove a Suburban like that at one point, but I, it was a 2007, and I drove it until this summer. <laughs> Finally died after 215000 So one thing, is it fair to say, guys, that almost to a client, now we deal with basically kind of the millionaire next door, people that really many of them didn't earn tons of money sure we have the brain surgeons and the heart surgeons and you know the people but if i look at the big basket most of them are just have wonderful retirements but the common denominator was a certain level of frugality that i think a lot of people aren't comfortable with 
For sure, and you don't see a lot of really expensive cars driving into our mm. parking lot. Even even the brain surgeons and the heart surgeon okay. clients that did make a lot of money, and and that's why they have the wealth that they do. Uh, you know, our, our why our clients in general have the wealth that they do is honestly in those two areas. I think they're relatively frugal. Yeah. You also set the bar lower. So if you're saving twenty five thousand dollars a year when you're working, when you retire, uh, you have twenty five thousand dollars that. Uh, you might have been spending, you don't have to match, so it makes it much easier because your savings then uh, don't have to be replicated in retirement unless you want to. Exactly. Yep. It's it's basically it cuts both ways when you're when you're frugal. It's less that you have to have saved, and it's more that you're going to save because you're spending less. So, I know that uh, you know now that I'm 60, you know at this stage in my life, the kids are out of the house. I have the lowest expenses I've ever had. Now I could go out if I wanted to buy, you know. If I wanted to impress everybody, I could go build a million, million and a half dollar house. And, and the bankers would lend me the money because I could afford it. Uh, I'm not saying this in any way to brag. It's really the opposite. What I have found for my own comfort zone, and my wife shares the same thing, is, and you've heard me say this, guys. I'm not talking about me now. I'm just saying it's okay to earn a lot of money. It's not okay to need to. I have found personally the key to a low-stress life from, from financial setup is spend plenty of money go on vacation do all you want uh as long as you're still saving a lot and you're not tying yourself into fixed payments so that on january 1st everything sort of has to go right just to make my payments i like a nice lifestyle but i like the majority of it to be discretionary not i don't want big boats i don't want big vacation homes i don't want fixed payments that show up my wife and I stayed in Captiva, Florida for a week. It, was, it wasn't cheap, but it was re- I thought it was reasonable. And I noticed that and the place was nice, but it's not. It's, it's just very nice, but it's not. But uh, the, the owner has a little thing out that says it's for sale, a million seven forty. Now, you know, in this town, it might be 200 225 <laughs> so it's obviously it's the scrape value it's right on the beach you have also have the bay behind you and in all those niceties mm-hmm. but i started thinking about if i wanted to buy something like that i mean it's got to cost me 10 or twelve thousand a month before i wake up every on the first day of each month and i can go there and rent it for a month in in between mid-january and mid-february like i'm going to I, I i just can't even make it make sense to me it's not so much that as i really don't want that money every month i got to make it whether there's a hurricane whether people rent my place whether my job's going well or the stock market's doing well so we can make more money i think that flexibility is even more important for retirees because more of your income is is basically coming from an investment portfolio that fluctuates mm-hmm. and having having that margin for error and the ability to cut some of your expenses if necessary like you said it can really make your life just l- lower stress yeah the new uh uh, thing not to do now is to people are rolling over their debt on one car to buy another car, so they end up buying a thirty thousand dollar car and coming away with forty thousand dollars of of debt. Which it, it seems like it's so obvious that you wouldn't do that that you wouldn't have to tell people, but uh, it's happening. It, 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 I was when I was in Florida, I heard an ad. You know, come in, buy a thirty thousand dollar car, and walk out with five thousand in cash. I'm thinking. Well, they're not giving them that five thousand. Somehow, I think they're doing a thirty-five thousand dollar loan on a thirty thousand dollar car. Some of these things that you say should be obvious. You would think mistakes that we see people make every day. Just being human. I mean, human nature is a problem. Um, and but one thing I my, my takeaway 
And I think you're right, David. Uh, when you think about a person retiring, they're going from a life with a steady paycheck every week, every two weeks, once a month, whatever it is. Uh, they're probably, for, most, for many people, saving money and investing in a 401k or something like that. So they're accumulating assets at the same time. Suddenly they go into retirement. Well, the steady paychecks no longer being direct deposited into your checking account or being sent to your mailbox. You're not saving investments anymore. You're actually decumulating. You may be spending because half of your portfolio, I mean, half of your, uh, I think it's pretty typical. I think if I had to think about our clients, I'd say probably half their lifestyle comes from their assets. So from their portfolios, their, all the accumulation they've done. You start thinking about, wow, I'm probably never going back to work. I'm kind of making an ir somewhat irreversible decision. And half of my income is going to come from this stock and bond portfolio that's seems to be fluctuating wildly every day. It's hard to get your arms around. I think that's a real task for people heading into retirement. Just that fundamental shift from no paycheck, no accumulation, to spending and Social Security or maybe a pension. Uh, so I'm going to leave the rest of those off, David, because I, I, I think you know they go into, yep. you know, don't buy coffee at the, at, at, well, I think they ought to call it five bucks because that's Every coffee costs five bucks at least, but they call it Starbucks. Uh, I'm not against that, but uh, the other thing I want to talk about, David and Ryan, is I, you put a couple charts in here at the last minute, David. Average annualized returns after new market highs. We talked a little bit about this. And for some reason, when we're at all-time highs, people think, I can't get in now. We're at all-time highs. Exactly. Yeah, I think all-time highs really mess with people's psyche. Um, and like you said, I think it's the feeling of it's too late to get in now. And I think where it really causes problems is like people who say you inherit a lump sum of cash or somehow you just you have this this money sitting there that's not invested. I think people really struggle to get that money invested when they think, oh, the market's at all time highs or even if they're making regular contributions. It's tempting to say, well, I'll wait for the pullback until I invest the money. And so what's interesting is if you, so again, dimensional fund advisors, they always like to say, okay, well, what's the evidence say? And if you just look historically um, at time periods where the market makes an all-time high, what have returns been a year forward, three years forward, and five years forward from those periods? And if you look just one year ahead of, of times where the market made an all-time high, the average one-year return was 14.1%. So that's actually higher than the historical average. And again, that's not to suggest that that's the conclusion you should draw is that it's going to be higher. It's just that, you know, it wasn't lower. Um, if you look three years ahead, it's 10.4%. And if you look five years ahead, the average return was 9.9%. So you start getting really close to historical averages there. And so the, the takeaway that they provide is basically, look, you, whether the market's at all-time highs or not, the expected return going forward is basically the same. It, it, the fact that it's at all-time highs or the fact that it's increased a lot recently doesn't mean that it has to have a pullback or that um, there's a high likelihood of, of worse returns going forward. It just doesn't work that way. One of the things I've noticed, guys, is when we tell people, you know what, because your plan's done so well, we can move from 60% stocks to 50 or 50% or maybe even down to 40%. In most interest rate environments, Fred, that's a welcome, like, well, that's fine. I can go buy my 4%, or at least my f bonds are earning 4 or 5%. And suddenly, they'll, they'll ask you, well, what am I going to earn in those bonds? And you say, well, maybe if we're lucky, a couple of percent. And they're like, but 
what uh, you know you could and these may be people that are 75 85 years old yeah. that normally would run to bonds if you gave them permission to suddenly fighting us at at the notion and it's just all yeah. gets back to these epic low interest rates right yeah there were, i was uh confess i i'm not a market timer but i'm uh, in the process of making my annual uh, 529 mistake, <laughs> I, I always <laughs> wait to uh, put into my uh, grandchildren's uh, college fund, uh, waiting for the market to go down and then take advantage of it. And every year I wait till uh, December and end up uh, calling it wrong. Yep. I, yeah. think, I think we could go back to the archives, uh, Dr. Fred, and hear this same talk every November, December for the past <laughs> few years. That's because this is an election year, Fred. Don't you know that the third year in an election cycle is a strong right. year? But well, what, yeah. it just goes to show it is so common. And even if you know, uh, even if you're aware of the fact that, you know, it's not necessarily a good strategy, it's so tempting from a human standpoint to try to kind of sort of time the market or wait for a, a pullback right. or an opportune time. Yeah, to but it's, it's always also if it goes down 10, is it really 10 or is it going to be 20? Exactly. <laughs> so you never, ne there's it's, never an automatic. Uh, uh, kind of a key to take action right yeah. for sure i remember when the dow jones went from a thousand to fifteen hundred over about a 12 or 15 month period now i remember this is in the early 80s and from 1966 to 1982 the dow went from a thousand to a thousand went nowhere with a lot of sheer terror in between so people were conditioned at that mm -hmm. point because we're always fighting the last war as i write so often and say on this show mm -hmm. and then suddenly it goes up 50 percent in a rather short period of time compared to 17 years or 16 years where it went sideways and over and over again there's still people that are probably still waiting at the dock for the ship to come in because it, they were waiting for it to go lower than 1500 so they could get back in only to see it go to 2000 and then 4000 and then 8000 and then 12. Um, so i guess the message is it's really human and really common for people at new all-time highs to be reluctant to d deploy new money that deserves or uh, that is marked for the great companies of America and the world. So if you're doing that, you're not alone. Uh, but that's where a good advisor can help because we're kind of agnostic. Uh, you are, Dave and Ryan. I'm not quite as agnostic about where the market's going. You know, <laughs> I, I'm probably my clients think I'm a incurable optimist, and I kind and I am in many senses. Uh, but it is fair to say we don't build our plans based on optimism. It's really the opposite is that fair for sure and, and i think for the people who if you do have money kind of sitting on the sidelines right now and you're struggling psychologically to pull the trigger and just dump that money in all at once there's always the option of dollar cost averaging i think the key is to have a concrete plan of when you're going to invest the money and stick to the plan and even though that strategy is probably going to be worse than just investing it all today it's better than getting stuck on the sidelines waiting for the right time because there never will be a right time and when you say dollar cost averaging i know we use it a lot we hear it so often that we know exactly what that means but just for the basics but when you mentioned that one option is dollar cost averaging kind of how, how would you mechanize how, how would that what would that look like if you're doing that for a client that might have emotional regret right there's no right or wrong so what i mean by dollar cost averaging is just investing your money in equal increments over time and it doesn't even have to necessarily be equal increments, but um, one thing I typically recommend is to, okay, let's invest at least half right now because we know chances are the right, we know the right thing to do is to invest it all now. But since we're struggling with that and we're worried about investing it all now and then the market goes down, well, we're going to invest the other half over 
6 or 12 months in equal increments so that, say you do get hit with a big bear market, yeah, the half's going down, but now you've got this other money that you can take advantage of those lows, and it really helps people from a psychological standpoint. Do you ever, because uh, I know I do, but do you ever, because uh, some things you do, uh, we have your own clients as well, uh, if you're in that dollar-cost averaging mode and suddenly we're down 10 or 15% in the broad U.S. stock market, uh, do you use that as a time to, do you have the judgment to, do you allow yourself the judgment to speed it up? It's hard to say. I, I like to stick to a plan because, like Dr. Gertz said earlier. Mr. Rigid, Fred. Uh, Dave, he's, he's rigid. <laughs> because it could continue to fall. Um, so it just, because it's down 10%, doesn't mean it's going to shoot back up like a rocket. It, you could, you know, it could fall another 10% from there. And you just never really know. So ideally, I like, but then within reason, it's like, yeah, okay, if we get a full-fledged bear market and it's down 30%, let's just put the money in now. Unless Who cares if it falls another? September of 1929. Right. Or, well, I could round it off to the beginning of 1929. Over yeah. the next three years, the stock market kind of each year lops off about a third. Right. So that's where using David's style would certainly you'd be happier right. if you did that. You'd be happier if you used a three-year <laughs> period. But. And I just think it's easier, again, from a psychology standpoint, to stick to a concrete plan and not have to continuously be wondering. So even if you, if you leave it up open for interpretation how much to invest each month, that just opens up kind of the, the same issue that you're trying to address in the first place, which is you're always going to be second-guessing what you're doing. So yeah. it's best to just say, I don't know what the market's going to do. I accept that. I should probably invest it all now, but I just can't bring myself to do that, so I'm going to invest it equally over the next X months. Yeah, so that's what I'd say for like anybody listening. If you don't know what to do without an advisor, pick one day on the month, the 15th of every month, regardless of what the market's doing, X percent goes in, no matter what's going on, and just stick to a simple plan, independent of what you see going on. That'll at least keep you on track without trying to second guess or maybe poke a hole in your boat a little bit if you if you do something out of the norm of what you were supposed and to do. you could do that. Can you automate that? Essentially, like I know You'd in our- you have to place uh, the trades. Well, I understand, but uh, let's take our uh, Rudy Wealth uh, co-pilot, which is, you know, that I know I put money in that every month and I think we can automate that. So at most major custodians, you could probably say, hey, well, here's the money in a money market fund on the first of each month or whatever day of each month, move $5,000 in until it's gone. I, I don't know if you can do that with actually investing the money. Maybe you can, and I'm not aware of it. I think you might have to have physically go in and, and place the trade, unless you're in one of those, like, quote, robo-advisor platforms, like Schwab has their intelligent portfolios or Betterment has theirs. Well, then they're the ones placing the trades for you. Right. But and you can do that. I know at Vanguard, for right. example, somebody had, they're going to put 100000 at Vanguard, and it's ultimately all going to be in the stock market, but they use Dave's plan of 50% down. I always talk about it as a down payment. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, equal amounts for the next six months. You can You can instruct Vanguard to put in you know, 5000 a month or whatever it is until it's gone or for the next six months. So that might be handy as well. I noticed the CB, CNBC Invest in You survey. There must have been a big survey. They covered a lot of ground in this. I was surprised with this, and I don't even know if I believe it. In fact, only 1% of those polled said they use a financial advisor. Um, I, I, first of all, I, I, I reject that. I, I, some, I don't know why. I mean, you'd think if they... It, you know, if they talk to thousands of people, you wouldn't be that skewed. Well, you're, you're talking about your university, the people you know, but if if you take the whole group of people, probably 60% of people have nothing to take advice about because they have no 
No savings. Yeah. 71% of Americans say some aspect of talking to a financial advisor scares them. So we, we know this, and I, I've talked about it on my most recent commercial on WDWS. It's one of the obstacles is I don't have enough money. Um, but this fear stems from high costs, lack of trust, and receiving bad news. What do you guys think about that? I mean, do you, does that jive with what you kind of see and feel out there? Yeah, certainly. I think for most folks, it's just the uh, the hard look in the mirror sometimes of maybe you've made a mistake you know about, or maybe you're fearful that something might be brought to light that you didn't know about, and then you have this immediate regret that maybe it's better to be blissful and put your head in the sand and keep going as as you have, and that might be better than having to take a hard look at something. But it doesn't mean that's the right thing to do, but it is the easier thing to do than to have to look at yourself and, and maybe make some changes. And a good advisor will be able to point those out kindly and say, listen, everybody makes mistakes. Nobody is infallible. It's just a matter of now that we know that something is maybe not optimal, we can make a change and you address how you do that. Yeah, so, I, I think the first two would probably be, I don't, maybe I don't feel like I have enough money, so I might embarrass myself. Or they're going to look at my past investments and they're going to make judgments yeah. and I'm gonna, they're going to make me feel stupid. And Daniel wrote a blog on this, so if you want to go to our website, um, uh, you know, and he, he talked about these fears. But one of the things I thought was interesting, he thought that, you know, to us, these are just numbers that we're trying to build a plan. We're not really in there to make judgments at all. We're just saying, well, it really doesn't matter what you've yeah. done. It's what you have to work with. I was going to say it's an uh, analogy to a, like a doctor. I, I assume if you go in and uh, with a cough and you end up having lung cancer, the doctor didn't say you're really stupid for smoking all these years. They, they treat it as a given and go on from there and try to do the best they can to help. Oh, they automatically think I'm stupid. Just when I walk in, Fred. <laughs> I like what Daniel wrote. What we care about is making sure you get the most out of whatever you have. In other words, there's this there's this big gap that we find. I think it's fair to say when prospective clients walk in, and they will describe the life they want, and then we look at what they're doing. And there's a big gap between the two. And I just I've always felt like our job is with the income streams they have and the assets they have. How do we close that gap and narrow it as close as we can, if not close it? Many times you can't close it in reality, but you can certainly make an impact and then you can narrow that gap. And I, I think that's really all a good advisor's after. They're not really after, you know, I, but I think that first step in is intimidating to people. I really do. And I don't know why. But, and and um, you know, the other one that I think is common is just um, the fear of being sold like a crappy in investment product. Well, that's, a, that's a lack of um, trust. But, I, you know, I was just thinking an easy way to address that is meet with a few different advisors and get different opinions. And then if one says something that sounds a little goofy or too good to be true, run it by the other ones. Be like, you know what I mean? You can you can get different opinions and then see which one makes sense. And then if there's someone you know who's really knowledgeable with finances that's not an advisor, then ask their opinion too or, you know, if they can help you make a decision. Yeah, I think uh, my experience has been follow your gut feeling. A good Midwesterners have a really powerful gut feeling, and I wouldn't be afraid to let that drive you. I mean, there's no facts about the future, so nobody can prove anything about what's going to happen in the future. You really somewhat have to follow your gut and maybe talk to friends, maybe independent people that don't have an ax to grind about who they think is sensible person to go to. Well, guys, thanks uh, for coming. Fred, welcome back. Uh, guys, I'm glad to be back, and we'll be back in two more weeks with Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.